The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. We're going to get into the Word uh, today. We're in James chapter 4, continuing our series in James, and uh, going through verses 1 through 10. And if you have your Bibles, open them up. If not, the big Bible's on the screen. So it's about warning against worldliness. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose of the scriptures, says he yield? He yearns jealously over the spirit that has been made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I'm going to call up Leon. He's going to give our message today, and I'm going to pray for him. But uh, if you paid attention during the reading, it's a, it's a fun one. So he gets a, a great challenge today to give us the word. So let's pray for Leon. Uh, Lord, we pray that, that uh, Leon's words are your words, Lord, that you give him uh, insight and wisdom, that you open up our hearts and minds, Lord, that we may receive this word and may uh, change us, Lord. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and for your love. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I guess it's too late to bail out now, right? <laughs> All right, here we go. This is a tough one, so let's get our thinking caps on and get our hearts ready. So, um, The title for my message today is The Deadly Drift into the Ethereal. I know that sounds like a very intellectual, weird title, but it's, it's got point to it. So, um, The word ethereal means this, because I'm going to use it a lot today. Ethereal means extremely delicate and light in a way that seems too perfect for this world. Some synonyms, synonyms of it are delicate, exquisite, dainty, elegant, graceful, fragile, airy, fine, subtle, subtle, and unearthly. So before we just get into that, I want to tell you guys a quick story. Uh, it was my wife's birthday just a couple of weeks ago, and we uh, went down and had a, I had a nice mixed drink at a bar called St. Genevieve of the Rock Rose in the Domain. And um, I got to tell you, I got a drink, and it wasn't the most manly looking of drinks. Um, but it was the name of the drink that caught my attention. The bar had creatively named the drink a slap in your face. It may actually say a slap in your face, but nonetheless, a slap in your face. Um, it was a really beautiful concoction of tequila, chocolate, coffee, and cream. So I presume the drink was purposefully made for those people that, at that point in the night that were just drifting to sleep, and they needed something to kind of wake them up. And I share this seemingly unrelated story regarding my selection of drinks uh, with you in the beginning of the message because I have read and reread and reread this text and I have dwelled and dwelled upon the complexity of this text for, for weeks now. I've wrestled with it. And the more I did, the more I've, I've, I've seen both the wonder yet the seriousness of it. 
And I feel convinced that James is here serving us as readers by the means of a linguistic concoction, basically his own slap in our face, as a way of passionately warning us not to drift into the ethereal. This passage, as much of James as a whole, is rough and abrupt. It's seemingly ungraceful at times. It's harsh and accusatory in its tone. Yet I believe it's simply necessary for the complexity and the deceitfulness of our own human nature. It is the drink that we sometimes need. For it seems that even while surrounded by the knowledge relating to Christianity, understanding what we claim to affirm, we can unconsciously drift to see the reality of that truth in an ethereal sense. And when I use the term ethereal, I'm pointing to the otherworldly way of seeing things that really, therefore, renders them as unrelated to this world and reality that we walk and live in. I think this concept of pushing truth into the ethereal is highlighted in the point um, that I would call the center of this message. In verse 5, James says, and my translation is slightly different, it says, Or do you suppose that when the Bible says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, that it doesn't mean what it says? And this idea of supposing that when the Bible says something that it doesn't mean what it says is not, I do not believe, an accusation that we deny or reject something that the Scripture says. Rather, it is the accusation that we, at times, unconsciously move a truth over into the lofty, ethereal, fluffy realm so that it really bears no real weight with us and remains unpondered and its implications unfaced. So what I want to do in this message is I want to navigate this through this text and pull out three warnings in, that, in, the, in the way that we think to keep us from drifting into the ethereal. I want to serve up three slaps in your face. So the first warning, and I only had two, and I couldn't do it through it. Uh, the first warning is this. We must not see our ultimate future after death in the ethereal. The second warning we must not see the dwelling of the Spirit within us as in the ethereal. And thirdly, the third warning is we must not see the personality of our God in the ethereal. So jumping into the first warning, we must not see our ultimate future in the ethereal, so the ultimate future after death in the ethereal. So in this first part of the text again, he says, where do wars come from? Why do people fight among you? He says, it all comes from within, doesn't it? From your desires for pleasure, which make war in your members. You want something and you haven't got it, so you murder someone. You long to possess something, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war. The reason you don't have it is because you don't ask for it, and when you do ask, you don't get it because you ask wrongly, intending to spend it on your pleasures. And when I was reading verses 1 through 3 of our text, I had to ask myself two initial questions. One, why is the term adulterers used as the accusation in verse 4 um, in the next section to summarize the actions of verses 1 through 3 in this? I mean, from the actions he's describing here, you would think that murderers or you violent people or warmongers either, even would be the, the correct or more accurate accusation to make. However, he chooses to accuse them and us of adultery. And then James goes on to sum all of this adultery up by saying that, don't you know that to be friends with the world is, means being enemies with God? So the, question, the second question I ask is, how is this list of things he just given, his actions listed in verse 1 through 3, 
regards to wanting something and not having it, to taking it, murdering and starting war, or asking for things with selfish motives, how is that considered seeking friendship with the world? And as I reread this passage, I kept thinking to myself, I can't in all honestly personally feel convicted by these verses. I mean, sure, I'm as, I'm as bad as the next person. I've wanted someone else's stuff, but I didn't want to murder them for it. Um, I've wanted to possess something that belongs to someone else, but I didn't start pondering a war to get it. So maybe it is possible that James is addressing individual cases here amongst his readers. However, I think it's likely that he is jumping to the extreme in the outworking of human sin, in an analysis of the core of human nature, rather than making personal accusations to all of his readers, addressing where we have gone as humans historically, even from the beginning with Cain slaying Abel over jealousy, and to where we could go as a species if left to ourselves. The language, I believe, is in an analysis of, of the nature of human desire if it's left to go the way of nature alone. John Owen, in his classic work on sin and temptation, said something in, this, in his, a book of his regarding this that I've never forgotten after I read it. I keep it stored in my heart. It's just a way of reminding myself the way I could go if left to myself. It says this about sin. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go to the utmost. Sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow, its, its grow to its head. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. James, like John Owen, starts with the extreme outworking of sin, talking of war and murder, and then he comes back down to the root of it, of where such behavior actually comes from. He says, it all comes from within, doesn't it? From your desire for pleasure, which makes war in your members. So basically, James is saying this, the outworking of violence is from within. But more specifically, it is, comes from the root, it is an it is at the root an issue of your desire. James makes it quite clear that the complexity and power of human desire is not something to leave unpondered. What makes desire complex, though, is that desire itself is a God-given gift, part of the very makeup of what it means to be a human being. If you robbed a human being of desire, you would rob him of being a human being. It is unique and complex. Yet, desire is something that the Scripture presents to us as something that can be corrupted. Hence, we see the term used in Scripture often of your corrupt desires. But we cannot rid ourselves of desire without destroying our humanity, but our desire must be tamed. The corruption within our desires must be identified and challenged and removed. Yet, even the most corrupt of desires have at the core of them some legit God-given aspect of, of our nature upon which they play, which is why they're so tricky to deal with, twisted and corrupted as that corruption may be. And our whole view and understanding of life and the whole understanding of our existence and purpose goes into how we tame and wrestle the complexity of those desires. How we deal with them is, is not unaffected by the way we think and the way we think about all things. Which brings me to this issue of how our view on life after death is part of our understanding of existence. 
Our desire is intricately laced in with that specific understanding of what the future holds for us. An ethereal view of the ultimate future for mankind and physical creation deeply affects our desire in life. Let me explain after I take a sip of water. Gnosticism and the dualism of Plato, who based has deceptively weaved itself in to the Christian narrative, creating an ethereal, kind of fluffy, cloud-like view of life after death. And by that view, it's separating desire from our whole being and associating it to merely our physicality, of which the Gnostics, and the, the, the Gnostics saw as inherently evil. And the ultimate future uh, is therefore to a Gnostic liberation from the physical body. Many other religions have kind of taken up the same theme today that um, that the, 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 the ultimate goal is to escape this evil flesh and this evil world and be off in the clouds or be off in the ethereal realm, the place of non-physicality. And we, as Christians, have at large brought hook, line, and sinker into this foreign philosophy and integrated into our theology, into our songs, and it's really become the accepted Christian view at large. If we really view our ultimate future, however, as of this ethereal world of non-physicality, never to see earth again, it is to embrace that creation was somehow, by that we're saying that creation was somehow a failed plan of God, or at best only our temporary home, and that at death we are set free from our bondage and then to go to our true home, into the ethereal, to the unphysical. However, as common as that narrative is today, this is not the biblical narrative regarding life after death. And the natural repercussions of ascribing to Christianity, but taking an ethereal view of what it really teaches regarding life after death, is that by creed and confession, you hold to Christianity. But by your framework of belief, you actually embrace the view of modern-day naturalism, which is prevalent in our culture today as, as regards the future. Meaning, you have a different religious variation of it, but nonetheless, you em we embrace the naturalist worldview summed up in cultural expressions such as, this life is all you get. Or more, more commonly, you only live once. No. No, you don't. You don't only live once. The fact is, you don't, you don't live once. Um, the, the fact that you don't live, only live once is kind of the hallmark of Christianity. That's the radiant, earth-shattering, atom-moving statement made to the entire cosmos when Jesus rose from the dead. That's the hashtag on the shirt if he had been wearing one. It would say, hashtag, you only live twice. You can Twitter that if anyone's got a phone out. Now, as soon as I said that, some of you, and most likely anyone in their 20s, is suddenly feeling that I was merely trying to conjure up false hope in my preacher-like roll-up here. A whisper may have popped in your head, and it likely went something like this. Well, sure you live twice, but you'll be in heaven forever singing with the angels, but you missed your chance to really live. And to really live will mean something different to all of you, and at different times. Being some instrument-playing, semi-angelic, asexual-like being, mesmerized in the ethereal, singing an unending list of hymns that you never really liked on earth is not very appealing to most. Tanner, I love what you do with him, so I was, I was not attacking those hymns, the other hymns I'm talking about. All right. 
if that is the ethereal image you hold of life after death, if we live with that assumption as our future, then in reality we will affirm the lie that this life, this life is all that you have. And we will live with minimal risk. We will convince ourselves that we are not hoarding and storing for retirement to live comfortably when in reality we are. We will, we will be continually pressed and even dominated by our desires who are yelling and screaming within us that they will never be fulfilled if we don't grab, grab them all now. And it is there in that rut of thought that a simple sin could grow its ugly head into the unthinkable. Now, before I go any further, let me clarify. I am not saying not to live your life fully. I'm not telling you that you're not, you can't be innovative entrepreneurs or to go out and seize the day and live it well with all you have. No, far from it. Do all of that, yet do it in the larger framework that the Scripture gives. Do it. Live every day using every day wisely. Live big, but within that larger narrative. Live life, but do not disconnect it from the larger narrative that includes life after death. So although, to be honest, the Scripture's present, presentation of life after death is worth a whole series, and it will be something we continually have to keep reminding ourselves about. Let me briefly, for the sake of making my overall point, quickly sum up what the Scripture actually teaches on the subject of life after death. God made matter. He made creation. He made time. He made this earth. He made us, and He made us to dwell upon it with the unique ability and the appropriate nature to respond to it to have desires connected to it and one another. We are made for physicality. However, it is evident that creation and our nature has been corrupted by the fall. And our um, by the fall. But the narrative of Scripture, the good news of the gospel, is not that we must now be rescued away from this physical place and go to the ethereal. It is that God will and has dealt with the corruption of physicality through the person of Jesus. That is the gospel in its full story, its full narrative. So to understand the future of life after death, we have to look at the only one that we know who's been raised from the dead. He who went before us, as he is said in scripture, as the firstborn from the dead, meaning there's more to come, the first of many. And there's something significant to note that the gospel writers draw our attention to when Jesus is resurrected, re resurrected bodily from the dead. He purposely asked for something to eat. And you guys Brad Pitt fans? Well, something he said in, in, in a movie is that he, every, if you watch a lot of Brad Pitt movies, he's always eating in the different scenes. It's like his, his trademark. And somehow, I think he's copying, Jesus has the same trademark. Every time he's in a situation, he's asking for something to eat. Um, but there's a significant exclusive claim of Christianity when Jesus is doing that, and we need to harbor it closely. When he asks for food and eats, by this action he is saying, I'm not a ghost. I'm not ethereal. I'm solid. Then he says later, see the scars in my hands and the feet and the wound in my side, he says to Thomas. Why is this so significant? Because it says that there is newness of physicality in resurrection. We are going to be solid. He is, and also, he is more alive than ever. But he's, and, he, and he also points to his scars. By pointing to his scars, sorry, he is showing that there is continuity to the life before. 
He doesn't resurrect to give testimony to some ethereal place in the clouds. He point, uh, clouds. Instead, he points to his scars, scars to show victory, to show continuity and accomplishment. He went through death, conquered its power, and came out the other side, aware of who he was and what he had done. Meaning this, the ultimate future, life after death, is not ethereal. We are not at death forever shedding our physicality. We are at death not seeing our last sunset. We are not tasting the last glass of wine we'll ever drink. We are not feeling the last cool breeze on us. Our body does die a death, but we shall, as Jesus, have it back again, anew, upgraded, but clothed in physicality nonetheless, to walk upon a renewed earth. But the narrative around the resurrection doesn't only speak of continuity with the life that we have now, it also speaks, and more importantly speaks, of fulfillment. For what is to come after death is not just related to life in this corrupt age, it is rather the fulfillment of what God had always intended for humanity. The future is not fluffy clouds and a harps and a half-hearted, unrelated existence to what you once knew because that would deny the original purpose of creation. No, the future is what God put on flesh to forge back together and restore. A solid, a renewed, solid existence, more solid than you have ever imagined. The essence of what you only sought as a shadow will be there in the new world in substance. Meaning this, that the beauty that we sought as an end in itself in this life was misleading in this age. A true desire, but a shadow at best of what it points to. The power we strive for was corrupted in this age. A play upon our longings, but it was pointing to something that was much more rewarding. The relationships we longed for were flawed in this age, mixed with the messiness and the deceitful agendas, residue of our own corruption. But they are only a foretaste at best of what we shall have in a purity unknown to us in this age, when God restores all things. There is continuity in the ages to come. There are rewards for sacrifices made in this one that are more than related, but actually fulfillment of those sacrifices made. Meaning, if you give up riches to give give your life for the sake of the poor, then you don't die and then get a pair of fairy wings to entertain you while you play a harp all day on a cloud in some ethereal place because those are not related. There is no continuity there between what you sacrificed and what the reward was. There's no strength for you in this age to sacrifice if that's your reward. Let's face it, we are reward-driven creatures. And God is aware of that and does not deny it in the Scripture. Rather, if we can see that there is something within and beyond the desire in riches for the security and the wealth and the stability that that is something that is God-given, God-designed, then you can live content in this age knowing that He will not withhold that from you in its ultimate picture. And that in the age to come, that more solid age in your renewed body, on that renewed earth, in all its purity, you will get to enjoy that thing with pure motivation and never lose it. You can truly grasp that. Sorry, if you can truly grasp that and believe that, then sacrifice is not a denial of desire, it is simply delayed gratification for something that 
the thing in this age was only a shadow, a signpost to the real thing that you actually long for. This understanding of life now and life to come is crucial if we, don't, if we want to tame our desires, because if not, they will run wild, and we will hear the whisper that is in the wind in this world that speaks of only one age, one chance, one life, but we cannot befriend that whisper because it lies and it plays and wreaks havoc upon our desires. We cannot listen to the voice of our Father and the substance that He is pointing to and at the same time the voice of the world with its mere shadows of what our soul longs for. And brings me to the second warning. The second warning is this. We must not see the dwelling of the Spirit within us as ethereal. Listen to James again. Adulterers, exclamation mark. Don't you know that to be friends with the world means being enemies with God? So anyone who wants to be friends with the world is setting themselves up as God's enemy. Or do you suppose that when the Bible says he yearns jealously over the Spirit he has made to dwell in us, it doesn't mean what it says? Don't you know that to be friends with the world means being enemies with God? This is a devastating statement. It cuts deep. To be friends with the world does not mean in the platonic sense of loving the physicality of creation or earth, as we have already covered that. What it means is this. It means to befriend the corruption that has happened to God's creation. It means to long to be in sync with its ways, to yearn for it, the way of pride, the way of belittling others to elevate ourselves, the way of greed, the way of violence, the way of lust, the way of arrogance, and all this to unconsciously serve the powers that fuel those ways, to worship the spirits that are the culmination of those ways. And we all feel that constant pull to be friends with it, to partake and to merge ourselves in it, to join it. In different areas of life for all of us and at different times, but nonetheless, we all feel that pull to stay with it. So it is, it is to that charge that we hear the most powerful accusation of adultery from James. It is here that we see how sacred our relationship is. It's here that we see how much that we don't realize how much the way of the world is so diabolically opposed to the, to the intent of God for us and for creation. The world's way is not merely disagreeable to God. It is not a way he would rather us not go. No, this language of James is strong. It is a slap in your face. It is it is saying that to befriend this way of the world is to set yourself up as the enemy of God. To not grasp this only shows us how much that we are at times deceived by the danger of our depravity, how little we, we underestimate the evil that lies within it. Now follow this logic. James logically concludes that from our friendship with the world, its corrupt way, that we, that he concludes that we, because of that, we must not take serious the fact that the Spirit has been made to dwell in us. Now, I'll be honest, this idea of the Spirit being made to dwell in us is, is more than a verse here in James. It runs through the entire narrative of Scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It is such an important theme to grasp that, actually, I dare not cover it here in just this point. However, it is vital that we see the significance of why James makes this logical conclusion that we must not, that we must not take it serious when the Scripture says that, we have been, that, sorry, that the Spirit has been made to dwell in us. I believe he is saying 
how little we understand how God's sacred and holy, set-apart, other presence will not dwell amongst the corruption of the world. The corruption that is in the world has no place in the future of God's creation, and that is God's intent. This is the accomplishment of redemption, which is why the narrative of merely saving souls to take them off to an inferior place is so far from the story of Scripture. Rather, the story of Scripture is the restoration of creation to its original intent, getting rid of the corruption to make it ready as a dwelling place for God. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will dwell in their midst. So in the context of God dwelling amongst men, James is saying, adulterers, don't you know what has begun in you? Don't you know who resides in your midst? Don't you understand what his intent is for us? That he would dwell and walk again in our midst. God has made creation for himself. He made us for himself. And he has done the unthinkable to restore that. And he describes himself like a jealous husband over his bride. He will not let us have any inferior lovers. And he will not give creation over to corruption for it is where he has chosen to make his dwelling. The Spirit dwells among us. He dwells within us. And there is a union that has happened. It is a mystery, but we dare not think it doesn't mean what it says. We dare not push the presence of God dwelling amongst us and this sacred union into the ethereal. Because when we do that, what we're wanting to do is disconnect our heart and conduct from him under the guise of it just being too lofty and fluffy and I don't get that stuff. James spoke clearly when he called us adulterers. It is his slap in the face to us to keep us from drifting into the ethereal. There is such a great ownership in that term adultery and a claim upon us in this choice of accusation. We do not dwell upon this enough. We must see that the passion with which God speaks when he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. His presence is holy and woe to us if we take his eternal plan and make its dwelling in, in, among us lightly. And now to our third and final warning. And this one is extremely important at this part of the message because James, after this strong rebuke, suddenly introduces some hope. So after he slaps us, it appears like he's going to talk to us after that and give us, give us some grace. Third warning. We must not see the personality of our God in the ethereal. To the last part of the text, James says this, But God gives more grace. So it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit to God then. Resist the devil and he will run away from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Make your hands clean, you sinners, and make your hearts pure, you double-minded lot. Make yourselves wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I want to tell you a quick story regarding this. I, I once had a job at a, a supply company and after work sometimes I'd get to do sermons every once in a while like I do now and I would stay after work and type them up because I didn't have a computer that worked at home. And <laughs> there was a guy that worked there and I think he must have seen me every once in a while writing these sermons and, um, and he obviously knew I was a Christian and later in life, I got a phone call from this guy, and he asked me if I was still a Christian and he wanted to meet with me. And we sat down, and he had basically 
become a Christian, and he was really excited about it, and he told me this whole story. And he went on about talking about um, sitting in a room and meditating and feeling the presence of God and, and just feeling his love and acceptance. I mean, and, and he truly felt it. I mean, he was very emotional. He was literally crying as he told me this. Um, and, you know, and I felt really convicted. I just, you know, he was just talking about spending hours in meditation. I just didn't do that. And anyway, so I felt convicted. But, um, but as he kept talking, I felt this kind of void creep up in me. Inside of me, he's continued to speak. Because what he was saying at some point just wasn't connecting, connecting with my deepest longing. It was missing something. And I don't know how the conversation got t- turned back to me and I got the chance to speak, but I just said, and I don't think I directed at him, I just said, God has a name. He has a personality. And I actually saw his face be kind of off guard. He was kind of caught off guard by me saying that. Because it was honestly a thought he had never contemplated. Um, and I miss maybe a rare case. I don't think everyone sees things that way. But it, gives a good, it brings it to the point of this, that, and something that I hear in culture today a lot, that to not see the personality of our God in the ethereal, the relationship and interaction of God and men is not devoid of personality. You're not just offending a God, a, a being, a presence, a force. He has a name, and he has literally a personality. His name is Yahweh, and he's, I am a jealous God. It's, it's personal. I believe the more that we have strayed from soaking ourselves in the Scripture as a whole, Old Testament and New, the more we have made a concept of God in the ethereal, ascribing to him a personality that's just not who he is, which can cause us to literally gloss over and unconsciously reject the serious tone of James. And if we miss that, then we certainly will drift into the ethereal and we will disconnect our heart from truly receiving the grace that's offered here. Our hearts cannot truly receive grace from either the all-forgiving, unreflected hippie God of the 70s that ignores sin and our corruption, all in the name of love, or they cannot accept grace from the unreasoning moral judge of the medieval age that is to be feared but devoid of any personality. On the contrary, however, this whole section of James, as as harsh as it is, whispers of God's passionate nature. There are words here of rebuke, no doubt, but they they are not disconnected from the passion of God. There is a command to humble oneself before him, but it is not from the tyrant who forces the submission of others by threat. Rather, the command is followed by words of a desire for closeness. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It is, if we can receive it, breathtaking language. The language that has flowed through this entire text so far of desire and pleasure and jealousy is realistically, upon observation, language far, far from the airy, ethereal, otherworldly language. Rather, it is close to us. It is almost sensual language in nature. It is the language of proximity, of connection, and of relationship. And there are lines here that trigger a longing in my heart. If only there for just a brief moment as I wonder as I speak that. But nonetheless, a rare moment where I break away from the disconnected image I have made of God. And for a moment, I see the heart, the passion of a father for me. One passionate for my heart as if I alone he sought. In a way so strong. 
a way that we only hope for secretly in our human relationships, a longing that we strive to communicate in our arts, in our songs, in our poetry, of a longing for it. But history has shown how foreign it is for us to truly see God this way. We rarely depict him like this. Maybe because we prefer a God without a personality. If he's ethereal and vague and something we can speak of in generalities, then we don't have to deal with someone that wants to engage our heart, that's concerned with the matters of our heart, that will not stop pursuing us until he has it. That is the language of a lover. But the heart of God is passionate, fiery for all our hearts, and we secretly long to be sought by this. Yet it is not one-sided. It is not as those who use the ethereal idea of the love of God as some free reign to do as they please. This is not the plea of a helpless parent pleading from the outside, desperate uh, for an arrogant and a rebellious child's love. That is a wrong and and often depicted picture. This is a husband calling a wayward, adulterous wife to humble and submit herself to come back to his love. This is a passionate pursuit. See in these words and see in these last instructions of James to humble oneself, to resist the devil, to make your hands clean, to make your hearts pure, to mourn and to weep for the state of our soul. See the commands of, a, of, a, of, approaching, of, a, of approaching a king, yet at the same time the promise of grace of a loving father. This is not ethereal language of the unknown and unknowable. This is the relationship with all its drama. This is the meeting of man with the personality of God, the standing before Yahweh. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Make your hands clean, you sinners, and make your hearts pure, you double-minded lot. Make yourselves wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In conclusion, and before we go into communion, I thought a lot about communion in this message, and to be honest with you, this communion right now is the most important part of this message. This text is spoken harshly to us today. It may have, in its own way, have slapped us in our face. And now we're about to enter a moment of silence before we partake of communion. And as we sit in reflective silence for a moment, I long that the word will do its work in our hearts, in my heart, as we humble ourselves, as we cleanse our hands, as we lower our heads and speak to our God in examination of what the Spirit has spoken to us in this message. But I want you, as you raise your head after that time, and we come as a family to the communion, to think about and really take in what we are about to do. Look at what is presented to you, for it speaks his strongest words. This meal that we partake of weekly is the ultimate statement against the ethereal. It speaks louder than our ultimate future. I'm sorry, it speaks loudly that our ultimate future after death is not ethereal, but solid. For this meal proclaims not only his death, but his bodily resurrection. It speaks loudly that the dwelling of the Spirit within us is not ethereal, but has, forged, has been forged by body and blood, victoriously accomplished, the presence of God in the midst of his people. It speaks clearly and loudly, showing the personality of our God is not some disconnected and ethereal God, but one so passionate that he, one so connected, one so engaged that he took on 
tangible human flesh and blood and gave himself for us and for the restoration of his purpose in creation. This meal he gave us is not ethereal. It's not delicate and light in a way that seems too perfect for this world, dainty, airy, unearthly. It is solid. It is real. It is substantial. It is continuity. It is body and it is blood. If it was ethereal, I'm sure he would have gave us some kind of hallucinating potion or something more representing of the unworldly. Maybe we just all got high at the altar. But he didn't. He gave us the most basic of elements, bread and wine. So plain and yet so relatable, so tangible to all of us. It is what we know as people. Yet it has been transformed to mean something so much greater. I am so glad that God is not the ethereal or unknowable. I'm so glad it was not above him to put on flesh and blood and then give himself because it means that his mercy, that his love, and that my redemption is not something ethereal, lofty concept to contemplate, but I can look at it. I can relate to it. I can hold the bread in my hand. I can hold the wine in, in in my hand, and I can eat those, the body and the blood, and I can taste it. I can hold it. Can we take communion today in all its solidity? Can we take it in and can we take in the victory that it speaks? And can we sing after in that victory? Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.